how can educators nurture a functional democracy when young people struggle to find reliable sources of information? To dig into this question, I am joined by Ken Boyd from Civics Canada. I'm your host, Celeste Kirsch, and we are Teaching Tomorrow. Civics is very well known to many Canadian educators for taking real-life political events and turning them into teachable moments that bring democracy alive in classrooms. Their student vote program is very likely how you first heard about their work, but in this episode, I speak with their director of education, Ken Boyd, about Control-F, their verification skills program. I mentioned a few times in this episode that we likely need to get Ken Boyd back to do a deeper dive into some of these ideas that we noodle through. We talk about the current information crisis, lateral reading, the importance of experiential education to democracy, and where to find hope amidst our backdrop of chaos. You definitely will want to stick around for Ken's Ticket Out the Door, where he shares some of the best advice I've heard in a long time. I know you're going to want to listen carefully to this episode, so maybe have a notebook handy or the notes app on your phone ready to go. Please welcome to the show, Ken Boyd from Civics Canada. You would not believe how many separate individual people over the last few months who I've had conversations with about the work of civics. So I am very happy to get to talk with you today. Welcome to the show, Ken Boyd. Oh, thank you so much for having me. Our present tense has been described as an information crisis or even an infodemic. Can you paint us a picture from your vantage point of this current moment in our democracy? Yeah, so this this notion of the the infodemic, right? This is really this is really a concept that caught on sort of at the beginning times of COVID when there was just such a, a torrent of information about what was going on with the epidemic with COVID and where people were just really trying to figure out exactly what was going on. There was a lot of information, not all of it good. There was a lot of false and misleading information that was coming out uh, at the same time as some of the good information. And one of the big worries at the time and, and even now is that this false and misleading information that would get spread around from person to person. So you have that sort of information epidemic, right? Um, it seems it seems like we've, we've sort of moved out perhaps from that early phase of infodemic especially when it when it had to do with had to do with covid but there does seem to be kind of a hangover from that uh which we might say has produced something of an information crisis in the sense that you know we are still still inundated with a tremendous amount of information just sort of every day and i think a lot of us have picked up these kinds of habits of just always being connected to the news and always reading what's going on and you know the term doom scrolling caught on during the epidemic as well, where we just sort of constantly look at information on our on our endless endless feeds, uh, and it's it's difficult, right, to to tell what's worth paying attention to and really what's worth ignoring, and especially with some of these problems that have that have maybe especially come out of the the pandemic with a kind of breakdown in trust in institutions that we maybe thought were trusted really before journalism experts academics there's uh, there's kind of a, a general sense of uh, of a breakdown in trust in, in these kinds of institutions so for our current moment in democracy right it, it's it's difficult to have a well-functioning democracy if people can't reliably identify trustworthy sources of information if they can't trust one another if they can't communicate effectively with one another. And that's really that's really the the biggest problem from from the kind of work that I do is that uh, you need to have an informed citizenship to have to have a well-functioning citizenship and 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 that's really a problem. Now, my perspective is also one that deals mostly with with young people, right? So I produce these kinds of materials that teachers can use with students and I think there's there's this thought that these problems of people not being able to identify good information online, that these are problems that belong to the older generations, that these are sort of old people, maybe like me and also older, where there's sort of a, a struggle there. Uh, and that students, young people, uh, they don't have this problem, right? They're, they're digital natives, which is to say that they've always grown up with technology. They've never been without the internet. They've 
you know, if you give a, a little kid an iPad, they just use it intuitively. And we think that's so amazing that they're so just naturally good at technology. So I think there's, there's, the, there's the sort of myth that these kinds of problems that face older generations don't face younger generations, but it is a myth. Uh, the students, young people are still susceptible to these kinds of problems. They're not good or they're just as bad as the older generations in identifying reliable and trustworthy information online. So, you know, I, I sort of see myself as, as trying to make sure that this sort of next generation, right, is prepared with those kinds of skills, that they can be well-informed, that they can eventually become those well-informed citizens that make up a well-functioning democracy because they don't have those skills just sort of intuitively by themselves. Yeah, that is a crucial point to highlight. And I think that I've heard that from many educators that, well, they just understand technology in a different way. And to some extent, that is true, but there are a lot of gaps. Like you don't intuitively know how to discern fact from fiction online. And I think it's important to underline too something that you're saying that we don't always know what to pay attention to. And I want to kind of dig deeper into this idea. And maybe this is a longer episode, this will turn into another follow-up <laughs> show. But do you think that's how the system was designed? You know, like when we're thinking about how delicate democracy actually is, and that these tools are kind of floating around us that are distracting us and confusing us. Mm -hmm. Is the system broken or is the system working exactly as it was designed? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's the system may be maybe working as it was designed, but maybe its purposes are kind of broken, right? I mean, mm. you 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 have what what's called the the attention economy that we live in right now, which is is that your attention, a user's attention, is is sort of a valuable resource that is being computed for by com companies, individuals corporations, influencers, whatever you like. So there is an incentive, a significant incentive to have your information that you want to produce be consumed by other people. And that means you want it to be plentiful. You want it to be captivating. You want it to be loud. Uh, it doesn't necessarily have to be true, uh, just as long as there's a lot of it and people are clicking on it, right? So there's, there is this kind of, this kind of incentive for this, this, inundating information people with information because then you sort of play this numbers game where more people are going to sort of click on your things and then and then follow up with them right so in that sense this kind of system that we have of you know infinite scrolling of constant information that we just that we see every minute of every single day that is kind of what is kind of working properly in a sense but it's not set up to be calibrated to the truth Right? It's not set up to maximize the quality of information we're going to get. It's, it's set up to maximize the quantity, whether it is true or reliable or not. Yeah, that, I mean, we could, again, we, let's have a whole another follow-up conversation about that. Because, I, I mean, I brought you in today to talk about your role with civics. And I, now I kind of want to have another whole conversation with you just as a <laughs> philosophy scholar and as a public scholar. Let's talk a little bit about civics. So a lot of educators listening today will be familiar with civics. Since 2003, you've been turning political moments into authentic learning for literally millions of school-aged children. Many people will know about your voting program. Uh, I want to hear a little bit about how civics approaches civic education. It's good that you mentioned since 2003, because this is our, in fact, the 20th anniversary. Happy birthday. Um, civics, thank you. Yeah. <laughs> I haven't been here for the whole 20 years, but I am uh, happy to celebrate along with the rest of my rest of my team that it has been has been 20 years of civics, which we're, which we're quite proud of. Yeah, as you mentioned, we we do have the the program that probably uh, most people are familiar with is our student vote program. That's our parallel election for students under the voting age. We run in schools uh, all across the country during federal elections, uh, uh, provincial elections, and sometimes municipal elections as well. Uh, we've been very busy this year, especially. There's been a lot going on. We've been traveling all across the country, uh, setting up these programs with teachers. So that's that's been keeping us really busy. But I guess uh, in terms of how civics really approaches civic education, uh, I think the key tenet of our approach is that the uh, civic education should be experiential, right? Uh, the programs that we develop and that we that we have teachers run with their students, they have students actively engaging in the relevant subject matter. So for our student vote program, right, we have students learn about 
the democratic process, they learn about the political parties, but then they physically cast a vote, right? They are actually participating in sort of like a little mock democracy in their school and they see the results of that. And we think that's really important that they actually sort of experience these, these processes themselves. And similarly for our other programs that we work with, our digital media literacy skills program, we have students actually going to live websites to evaluate whether they think those websites are reliable or trustworthy or not. Uh, with our uh, constructive discourse program, we have students who uh, learn the kinds of skills that they need to have constructive discussions by taking on different perspectives, by experiencing how their biases can interpret how they uh, can influence how they interpret the world and, and seek out information, and by actually practicing discussions, by having difficult discussions with one another. So it's very much sort of a learning by doing, I think is sort of our, our key sort of tenant. And I remember just sort of, I was trying to think back on being a student myself in my own education in civics. And I don't know how, I don't know how it was for you, but for me, I maybe vaguely recall reading a Canadian politics textbook. Uh, and that was maybe the extent of it. And I think that whatever knowledge I gained just left as soon as it as soon as I gained it. And of course, things of that was a fair amount of time ago and things have changed in the intervening decades. But still, right, I mean, that kind of process of of learning about democracy just by sort of mm -hmm. sitting and reading about it, it's not going to probably make that big of an impact. So we like to think, you know, actually go out, do some things, you know, be be a democratic citizen. That's that's what we like to like to promote. Absolutely. I think that many people, when they think about their most formative learning experiences in traditional schooling, they think about those experiential moments. I was in grade five when the referendum happened, where Quebec was deciding if they separated, and my grade five teacher had us vote in it. And I still remember, like, I think I was elected to be the um, governor general. And like, I still have this like identity as like a secret governor general, like that, that stuff stays with you, you know? And I think civics is really wise to try to tap into that. And since you've been around for 20 years, I also at listening to you speak, I was wondering, have you followed up with any students since they've done a civics program and investigate whether they are, you know, actively involved in democratic life? We have, yeah, we actually, We'll uh, on occasion uh, get people who will get in contact with us who will be um, elected representatives at different levels of the government and and say, you know, I, I remember doing student vote. Actually, I was just pulling up something from our from our group Slack here. Uh, Karina Gould uh, was uh, recently elected to the House of Commons and she uh, apparently she recently told uh, had an interview where she said that all started with student votes was oh, her wow. sort, of, uh, sort of interest, I guess, in the, in the democratic process uh, in Canada. So uh, yeah, she was uh, back way back in 2003. She apparently chaired the first ever student vote program uh, at her school in Burlington. And uh, yeah, so we, we do sometimes see this happen, right? Students who engage in this, it does really make an impact with them. They grow up and, you know, get involved in, in, the, mm. in a very sort of real and tangible way. That makes so much sense. Let's zoom in a little bit more now. So the student vote program, I, I don't know if this is right, but it seems like your bread and butter. And then the control F program is a more recent development. So can you talk a little bit about that and how it fits into your broader vision for civic learning? Yeah, Control F is our uh, program that we started about three or four years ago. Um, this is our, uh, we call it our verification skills program. It's uh, teaches students skills, how to evaluate sources and information that they come across online. Um, the program is built around some, uh, some key skills called lateral reading skills. And these skills basically have students uh, doing some research to establish some context to figure out what are they looking at when they come across some information online. So, so often we just, we see things we, we just sort of evaluate it on the basis of whether it sort of seems plausible to us or whether we like it or not. We tend to ignore where it came from or who is actually making the information. So these are some skills that we, we teach students. We want them to sort of get off of the page, we like to say, if you're looking at a website you're unfamiliar with, leave the page, do some research about it, 
and then come back and determine, is this thing worth my time? Should I be finding some better source of information? Should I sort of be trading up for my quality of sources, right? There's a lot of stuff out there on the internet. Not all of it is worth paying attention to. So we want to give students some skills to determine, you know, should I pay attention to this or not? This is, again, you know, this is part of this, this broader theme in wanting to make sure that democratic citizens in Canada are well-informed, right? We want to make sure that students have these kinds of skills, right? That they that they are able to effectively evaluate much of the information that they come across online. And uh, and again, this is, this is a program that is, uh, I talked about sort of our, our programming being experiential. This is, again, a kind of experiential program where we do give them websites, we give them social media posts, we give them both from reliable and unreliable and ones that are maybe hard to determine kinds of sources. They go out, they do that research with these skills, and they come back and they determine, you know, is this actually worth worth paying attention to or not? And you've done um, research on this as well, haven't you? Like there's been some work that's been done to see, does this actually, does this actually work? Can you talk a little bit about how you know it works? Yeah, yeah, of course. Yeah, because uh, that's important, right? I mean, I always <laughs> when I when I do these workshops with uh, with teachers, I always end by saying, you know, we I've told you about all of these skills in this in this program, but you might be curious, you know, <laughs> does it does it actually work? Because there are a lot of digital media literacy programs, especially in schools, that are sort of holdovers from mm. from a different time. Uh, a lot of these are sort of adapted from when the most most of the research that you would be doing would be looking at books in a library. And then it was kind of adapted to try to fit the digital age and using the internet. And it doesn't work, right? It Are you just talking doesn't... about the crap test? C-R-A-A-P? I'm absolutely <laughs> talking about the crap test. So we have, a yeah, the, the crap test is one of these, these classic, um, what we refer to as, as a kind of vertical reading skill. So the idea is that you determine whether information is worth paying attention to or whether it's reliable by looking at it very closely, by analyzing the content that you see on the page. And, and the CRAAP test is an acronym for, for the kinds of check boxes that you might go down and you might say, is it C, current, right? Is it R, relevant to my interests? Is it A, authoritative? And you can sort of go down and, and check off these boxes. This is a popular versions of this are popular, if, if not the actual crap test itself, but they're not good at helping you identify reliable and trustworthy information online for many, many reasons. One of which being that uh, it's very easy to make information look convincing and authoritative online that can easily fool some of these tests, right? Just students will look at it and they will say, oh yeah, no, it's got it's got things like, oh, it's got an about page with lots of information. It's got lots of articles. And here's a bunch of pictures of people wearing lab coats. I did this. I did a one of these at a, a student workshop recently. And that was one of the reasons they gave me for thinking, yeah, this is a good source of information. Look at all these doctors in lab coats, right? And it's just, it's easy to make this kind of stuff that will fool you, right? So we don't want to do that, right? That's not going to work. We want to say, you have to leave the page. You have to research and then come back, right? Don't just don't just evaluate what you're looking at by looking at it. So, does this work? Yeah. The the short answer is yeah, it works. So we we base the we base the program on some initial research uh, from the Stanford History Education Group, and we worked with some uh, some of our partners at the research partners at the University of Washington. Uh, they had done some studies on this uh, lateral reading program that had been developed in the states. Uh, on uh, American students, and they found some uh, really uh, encouraging results. Um, we wanted to know, does this work with Canadian students? And also we wanted to know, you know, are Canadian students better or worse at evaluating information than American students, just as sort of a baseline, right, without going through any instruction? And we, you know, as, as Canadians, we sometimes like to think, oh, yeah, no, that's just we're, we're sort of better than those silly Americans in some other ways. <laughs> Apologies to any American listeners, but we have that Canadian superiority kind of kicks in sometimes. And that's not warranted at all. Canadian students are no better than their American counterparts on any of this stuff. So we 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 give them, we uh, sort of test them before going through the program and then afterwards, and we see real improvement. We see that they're able to much better identify what the motives are behind different groups for producing content. 
information that they rated as reliable because it looked very authoritative. After going through the program, they were able to see, they were able to identify these uh, kinds of groups that are just sort of masquerading as reliable and to really uncover their actual motives. Um, we found that they use these sort of better research skills much more frequently. So it's, you know, it's not a, it's not a silver bullet. It's not something that will, will solve all of these kinds of problems, but it does make students significantly better at evaluating information when they use the kind of skills uh, in the program. I'm also, I mean, like I'm picturing a young person scrolling on TikTok and the way that information comes to young people now is really different than it was even five years ago. And they may not necessarily know how the algorithms are working on them. So mm -hmm. I'm wondering, like you talk a lot about like knowing the information and being able to like understand where it's coming from. What about knowing ourselves and being able to know our own identities? Like oftentimes I'll get something on one of these platforms and I'm like, why does the algorithm know <laughs> this part of my identity? Like what have I provided yeah that now the algorithm knows that I'm a queer white woman. Like, it's fascinating right. to me. Like, has there been, I mean, I know that this may not be the scope of the Control F program, but how might we better enable young people to understand their identities and how they interact with algorithms? Yeah, it's it's a good question. And it's a, it's a really good question because it, it leads sort of into the, the some of the newer programming that we're actually developing. So mm. this is... Um, I mentioned just very quickly uh, our Polytalks program. This is our constructive discourse program. So part of uh, the lessons and the programming that we're developing here are is precisely what you're mentioning, sort of getting students to better understand uh, not only uh, about themselves, so, so understanding you know, why they might have the perspectives that they do on certain issues, why people might have different perspectives on, on the same kind of social or political issues, and then also understanding how their identities impact the way that uh, they're presented with and seek out information online, right? We know that students spend so much of their lives online, so we really wanted to focus on these kinds of interactions between you know, their, their political and their social identity and the kinds of ways that they interact with information, uh, information online. So we we have some uh, we have some materials that we're that we are developing about about algorithms, right? Learning what an algorithm is, how does it make these kinds of decisions about what to show you, and how might uh, how you and the algorithm interact? So based on your behavior, like what kind of stuff do you click on? What kind of stuff do you watch? It gathers that information. Also, how these algorithms themselves are developed to try to promote the kind of information that's going to grab your attention the most, that's going to keep you on that platform the most. Um, and then also thinking about the kinds of ways that algorithms can really lead you astray or can be harmful in certain kinds of ways. So we were talking about uh, some algorithmic bias in the way that the algorithms promote certain kinds of information at the expense of others and how, uh, you know, these things are not just sort of objective showing you the best kind of information, um, but they are just showing you, you know, the kind of stuff that you come across is is both based on your behavior, your interests, what it thinks about you, and also some of this programming on the other end that's, that's sort of pushing certain kinds of information, information to the front. It, it actually really reminds me of how we talk about young people having access to these digital tools, but actually another key component of access is being able to understand how these tools are working on them. And it's not enough to just have the tools in the classrooms at homes. You actually need to be able to be critical about them in mm -hmm. order to transform the world using them. Like this is actually how civic participation happens. Like young people, yes, voting is great, but I'm also really interested in, you know, like those young people that took over that stadium of a Donald Trump rally and got mm -hmm. everyone to buy tickets. Like that for me is civic participation. That's mm -hmm. young people using these tools to transform something. So I am just deeply in awe of the work that civics is doing. This is not a paid sponsorship podcast. <laughs> I'm just, I think it's crucial, the work that is happening on your end. It just it, just to pick up on that, because I think that's really important what you're, what you're talking about in terms of different forms of civic participation, right? I mean, you have when we think about democratic participation, probably the first thing that comes to our mind is voting, right? You, you, that's sort of the key function of a, of a democratic citizen, how, how you make your voice heard. But you're absolutely right that uh, young people especially are using online tools in ways to, um, and to be politically active. 
uh, in ways that I think also that maybe older generations don't appreciate yes. in the same kind of way, right? So there's this term called slacktivism, mm -hmm. right? Which is to say that, oh, what young people think being politically active is, is just like following certain accounts and liking certain posts. And like, then they feel good about themselves because they think that they've participated, but really all they're doing is just sort of like clicking a thing online. And, you know, to, to an extent, just merely clicking or whatever, you might say, okay, maybe that's not really that important, but there's, you know, it sort of downplays the kinds of ways that students can use, especially social media, in order to sort of express political views and, and really to express themselves politically. And I know that, I know that talking with some students, they think that is really an important form of their, of political expression on their point to part, to say that I'm not going to engage with certain contents online because that's, conflicts with or it promotes a message that that I don't think is right or um you know whatever something like that and so that does you know and that can have a certain kind of impact right that can have an impact in the way that um in the way that companies might respond to this kind of this kind of uh uh sort of negative reaction on the on the part of young, younger people it's not just you know it's not being online doesn't mean that you're not also politically active right you can do both of those kinds of things and I think that you know, that's, that's an important thing just to, just to remember. And that young people are changing how, like, yes, of course, voting is important and that is integral, but that is a very slow moving process to create change in our society. You know, I, I was reading this book by any media necessary, and I'll, I'll put it in the show notes because it shows really salient examples of young people using these tools to create more expedited social change. Like, Everything about J.K. Rowling aside, the Harry Potter Alliance mm -hmm. was a really good example of a bunch of young people coming together with a shared identity. And, you know, they would protest, you know, at like the Harry Potter, I don't know, like Universal, like wherever Harry Potter land is. Right, they were, right. you know, angry about fair trade, non-fair trade chocolate being used. And so they would all boycott it. And then the company actually listened. And, you know, small things like that where huge collections of young people online can put pressure on these organizations. And that is also civic participation. And that I think gives me hope for, you know, like we have this really, like you painted a very bleak picture at the beginning of our show of what <laughs> this online ecosystem is doing for young people. And without that kind of critical education of how these systems are working and how they can use those systems to circumnavigate these older slower processes they're mm -hmm. putting pressure on the systems to make things better for everybody and I, that yeah. that gives me hope absolutely and i don't i don't mean to i don't mean to just be all doom and gloom of course <laughs> just to paint sort of the the bleakest picture right i mean one of the things that we emphasize is that you know there is there's a lot of great information on the internet there's a lot mm -hmm. of reliable sources experts journalists great places to find information right so it's not all doom and gloom, right? It's not like the internet is just this this kind of cesspool of exclusively uh, low quality and false information. There's good stuff out there. So yeah. But it's I, both. I, I think that's the important lesson. And I think yeah. as a parent, I think that I can kind of veer into the dumpster fire of it all. <laughs> sure. But it's how we equipped, how we equip young people to navigate that and to make it better. It's like driving is inherently incredibly dangerous. Swimming is very dangerous. We deal with those things with a lot of caution and a lot of education and a lot of care and support. And that's how we can, you know, enjoy swimming without drowning. Right, it's the right. same thing with the internet. It's just very, very new, relatively speaking. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And 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 really, as I mentioned, just when we talked about the crap test, it's it's not only relatively new, but the tools we have, they're outdated. Right? Yeah. And we just sort of we need to we need to update our tools um, with the times. Speaking of cesspools and dumpster fires, uh, <laughs> you wrote an article about the chaos of Twitter changing its verification process mm -hmm. and how I really appreciate the lens that you put on it because you were writing about how this made fact checking on Twitter really awful, like really terrible and really hard. So now chatbots have entered the scene and they're literally engineered to be vectors of propaganda. And I just feel like it makes things so much more complicated for young people to mm -hmm. who are have developing reading skills at 
the start. And then when you add those kinds of vectors of propaganda, it makes it so much harder. So aside from going through something like the robust training with control F, what can adults who work with and care for young people do to ensure that at the heart of this functioning democracy is a well-informed citizenry? I'm, I'm thinking specifically too about parents and how they might help young people navigate this. Right. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, it's a really good question. And, and you mentioned the, the kind of dumpster fire that has been Twitter, uh, everything is changing so quickly, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, every, and you mentioned, you know, the chat bots, things like the, these AI things like ChatGPT and these other kinds of, uh, other kinds of programs. Every, I, I have these subscriptions to these newsletters that sort of inform me about what's going on. And I get one, I think every hour about what's, what's popping up some new thing, right? It's so hard to keep up with this. And the, the big Twitter thing, right, was just that we used to have this, this marker, this sort of verification uh, symbol that, at least indicated that an account was was who they said they were. Right? Uh, and what we found, what I what I still find when when talking to students is that they see a verification mark, they see a blue check mark on a Twitter account or an Instagram account, I think, and or even they don't really use Facebook, but if they see Facebook, they might see something like that on there. And they interpret that as a marker of credibility. Now, it, it was never a marker of credibility, right? It was just a marker of authenticity. It could have been an authentic person who was just sort of, you know, full of nonsense, but it was actually, you could know that it was really, really them. But, you know, we, we still, we use these kinds of markers as, as proxies, right, for credibility. We're, we're scrolling through a tremendous amount of information. You're trying to, you're trying to grasp onto any, something, anything, that will tell you this is a thing that I should look at and this is something that I don't need to look at. So we we do look at those kinds of markers and and you know take them seriously, whether we should or not. Um, students still do that today. I ask them, you know, I give them examples and I say, do you think this the information in this tweet is is true, um, or that you know we have. Uh, we have tweets that sort of advertise products, and we think, do you think this product is a real product? And they'll tell me, you know, even today, uh, it's got a blue check mark on the account that means it's reliable so this is a real thing right and i asked them you know like what does a blue check mark mean and i get them to do some research i get them to look it up to say like what does it actually mean and they and they come back to me and they say oh yeah it doesn't actually mean anything anymore it just means that you sort of you paid for it and that's uh, that's not really a marker of anything at all so th this kind of transition right from from uh, an indicator that used to mean something if not exactly what we thought it did to now meaning nothing at all, right? Those changes, those technological changes move extremely quickly. People don't move that quickly, right? So it takes a long time for us to sort of collectively catch up and recalibrate to say, okay, now this is something that I don't need to pay attention to anymore. This is something that I, it, it's no longer has the meaning that I thought it did. So that's, that's sort of that chaos that I was describing where, you know, you, you've, the sort of the thing that you've grasped onto is no longer attached to anything, right? So now you're sort of free floating and you don't really know. It's much harder for you to calibrate yourself towards those, those things that are reliable, those things that are, that are trustworthy. And, and I mean, the, the Twitter stuff, I'm even just, even just today, I was reading about these new labels that are being applied to different kinds of media sources. Um, this will probably be outdated by the time that uh, this goes to air, probably by the time I finish this sentence, this information will be outdated. But yeah, this 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 makes it this makes it really hard. And and you know, you mentioned these you mentioned these new these new chatbots um, adding just adding to the chaos, just adding to the kinds of uh, the amounts of misinformation and disinformation that is that is out there, and the kinds of problems that that it that come with it. And you know, we've seen. We see a lot of this. These uh, ChatGPT is the, probably the most popular one, but there's a lot of other competing uh, programs that are being developed by lots of different companies. It's it's extremely hot right now, right? There's so much hype around it, so people are trying to get in on this. They don't want to be left. Don't want to be left behind. You not only have the text generation, you have the image generation to make sort of these fake, you know, very convincing looking fake pictures. This is this is really producing a lot of a lot of chaos, a lot more information that's out there, right? The, the, the the problem with the problem with this with, with these kinds of things is is not that you know it's not that this misinformation or disinformation is new and it's not that faked images are new right so they're not creating a new kind of problem 
but they're reducing the cost of producing these kinds of things to zero, essentially zero, right? If you wanted to produce, you know, fake text, you wanted to produce uh, propaganda, you wanted to produce this kind of disinformation, you'd actually have to sit down and write it or hire someone to write it, pay them some money to write it. And that was a cost. And now there's no cost. Now you just ask ChatGPT to do something. It's got some filters, but you can get around them. Um, but it will produce you this kind of information en masse for free. And the same thing for image generation, right? Photoshop has been around for a long time, but Photoshop is hard, right? I don't know if <laughs> I might just be bad at it, but it's hard no. to do, it's right? It's a skill. It, yeah. It's a skill. And there is no skill needed in mm -hmm. typing into Midjourney or Dali or whatever one of these other ones is to say, make me a picture of Donald Trump getting arrested, which is one of these, these popular ones that got uh, sent around recently. So it's this is really the problem, right? It's, it's just this, this kind of ease of production where sort of any bad actor can just sort of produce this kind of information for free as much as as much as they as much as they want. I'll say just one more. I know I've been, I've been talking a lot about no, this. No, I love it. We Keep could going. talk forever about this. I'll just say one more thing about, about these kinds of programs because you have this one problem, this one sort of side of the problem, which is you have cheap, large-scale ability to produce misinformation and disinformation by bad actors uh, in whatever way that they want to. But the other side of the problem is people using these programs, especially like ChatGPT, as authoritative sources of information. So they'll use it like a Google search. They'll use it like Wikipedia. They'll ask it, you know, ChatGPT, tell me whatever kind of information that I want to know, and it will spit out an answer and they'll say, okay, that's true. They think that ChatGPT is, is their answer is, is reliable, but it's extremely well documented that ChatGPT is very prone to mistakes, right? Because it's not really checking for truth. It's mostly checking to see if, words sort of naturally follow one another based on the way that it's been based on the way that it's been trained and the data set that it that it has so there is this i think there's this this the kind of problem especially with students who might not fully understand what what they're doing and what they're looking at they might use it as as a kind of authoritative source of information and really be misled right chat gpc said that this was the case so i believed it they're not able to identify the problems that could be in there so there's there's that kind of side of the of the dumpster fire coin here as well, if you want to say, <laughs> want to put it that way. That yeah, that relying on it as a source of information is going to cause, I think, just a tremendous number of problems and just confusion and mistakes. So, do you see the after effect of that being that young people just become so much more cynical about everything they see online? Like, is the after effect of teaching all these young people, you can't really trust this and mm -hmm. be really careful about all these images. Everything can be created so cheaply. Will we just have a generation of cynics on our hands? I so I hope I hope not. <laughs> so certainly, you know, there there is a virtue of skepticism, but it has to be a kind of well-calibrated skepticism. It can't, it can't just be trust no one, trust nothing. Um, everyone is making stuff up. Everyone is lying to you. That's not that's not what we want. I think there could be an increased role for those more established, uh, kind of historically trustworthy institutions like media outlets with, uh, you know, with journalists who have professional standards. Right, we're think going to go back more to those kinds of sources because at least we know something about what they're set up to do and who's doing the work. And so we might be a little bit more, just more skeptical of, you know, sort of some things that we come across online when we don't know what the source really is. If we just sort of read an article on some random website, we might might be like, okay, well, if I know that this content could be easily produced by say something like ChatGPT, then I should go to a source that I, I know and trust that I recognize to see if they're saying the same thing or to say if, if other reputable sources are saying this. And I think that's ultimately fine, right? I think I think that's good and really what, what we do want students to be doing, not just not just taking it on the face of you know something that that sounds convincing or that sounds well written, because a lot of the chat GPT stuff does sound 
well-written, but making sure that it really does come from, from a reliable source, if reliable sources are saying the same thing. So I, I hope that that's the consequence of this, not just mm -hmm. that we get this kind of uh, sort of uncritical, broad-scale skepticism and distrust of everything. I have a hard time believing that that is where we would go <laughs> as a generation, but it is a fear, I think. And, you know, I'm, I'm struck by, I don't know if you listen to Ezra Klein or read his work, mm -hmm. but how he had that opinion piece coming out recently where he said, we need to slow this train down. And I am very pro-technology. I'm doing a dissertation about digital literacy, but I, I think that I'm on that train too now of we don't yet know how these tools, like these chatbots, this AI is going to be working on us. And we need some time to figure out how do we get the infrastructure to match it. Like I'm, I'm thinking even about how maybe it is law that all social media platforms have to have some kind of waterprint if it is a AI created mm -hmm. content or something mm -hmm. to keep our democracy thriving, be able to have people still have some element of understanding what it is that they're reading. Yeah, absolutely. So I, I there there have been these, as you mentioned, there have been these these calls to sort of put a pause on developments of these these AI, you know, these programs, these chatbots and these things like that. Just to, yeah, just as you mentioned, to sort of give give people a chance to chance to catch up and you know really figure out what exactly are we dealing with here. I I would like that to happen, but it's not going to, right? Mm. I mean, because there's no companies don't care about whether there's a pause on that. They are, it's a gold rush right now, mm -hmm. right? They cannot get left out of this this AI whatever. I mean, there's uh, Bing has one, Google's developing one, Elon Musk just said that he's going to start doing one, right? So if you say everyone, let's pause. They might say, you know, maybe they'll say, okay, yeah, for sure. And then secretly work on it in the background. And then six months from now, you have this, just all of a sudden, you have this brand new program coming out of nowhere. I, I absolutely agree with this, this, this kind of general slowing down, right? So you, you asked if there's, you know, is there something that you can do, right, to adults that work with young people, especially like, what can you, what can you sort of impart? And I think, I think that that sort of slowing down with your own behavior is is really something that that we need to do. So we, when we think about when we think about you know that endless kind of scrolling, when we think about just consuming piece of information after piece of information, uh, it's really easy to just look at something for a second and then move on to the next thing and not even thinking about it. And so I, I think that that kind of that kind of general like slow down, be be de deliberate with what you're paying attention to, right? That's the thing that if there was one virtue that I could try to instill in sort of, I guess, everyone would be, you know, just, just take a breath, right? Just slow and slow down. You're not missing anything. There will always be more information there. You don't have to worry about it, but just, you know, just make sure that you are, when you're consuming things, be conscientious about it and, and just sort of try to stop and think about it. And that's going to be uh, that's not easy. That's not always easy, especially with the amount of information we see with all this new stuff that that's coming out. Um, but I think that's, I think that's generally what, what we should probably try to do. Just be, just slow it down a little bit. That, that is a really important thing to remember that we have the power to go against the stream and be mindful with these tools that are asking us to not be mindful. They are in fact designed for us to not be mindful. Yeah, absolutely. And, and like, and like you said, I mean, there's, the problem has to be addressed from multiple issues in terms of the platforms, right? If the platform's they need to take some responsibility in maybe indicating the, the sort of nature of their content. As you said, something about like this content has been produced by ChatGPT or some other kind of things, right? We need some help from the other side, right? It, it's it's certainly our behaviors that we have certain kinds of control over, but that's not to you know take all responsibility away from the kinds of groups that are really, as you mentioned, right? Trying to just do their darndest to get us to consume sort of unthinkingly as much as possible. So uh, yeah, the, I, the only thing that we can really do, I guess, from our sort of point of view is, you know, focus on our own behavior, try to control what we can control. And yeah, that might just be doing our best to try to be more conscientious about what we see. So you've described yourself as a person who is driven by questions surrounding informed citizenship, discourse, and navigating a complex online world. And I think everyone listening today can clearly understand that 
you know, you are a very thoughtful person and you are a person who is obviously in the right field. In your journey and in your professional work exploring these questions, is there a story or an anecdote that gives you hope? You know, we started with kind of a bleak picture. We've touched on the dumpster fire. Can we end on a story of hope? Yeah, yeah, it's a good it's a good place to end because we have, you know, we started bleak, then we went to dumpster fire and then, you know, I don't know what comes after dumpster fire, maybe bleak dumpster fires, whatever that should. Hope comes after the dumpster fire. I, I hope out of the ashes comes Yes. Hope. Yes, I I do I do hope that, that that's true. So, yeah, I mean, I think I think the the kinds of things that most give me hope are really are really hearing from teachers, hearing from students about how they react to the kind of programming, especially the digital media literacy program that programming that we have. Um, we get sometimes these um, emails from teachers who will say, you know, I went through went through the program and uh, my students were were super excited about being little detectives, basically. Like they, so I think I mentioned one of the things that we have them do, one of the tasks that we have them do is, you know, we we get them to investigate uh, a website that looks on its surface to be very authoritative, looks to be professional, uh, but is actually just run by sort of an advocacy group that's pushing a certain kind of uh, corporate or political or social agenda. It's not set up to inform you. It's not set up to be, you know, a really good source of information. It's just set up to try to convince you to believe these kinds of things. Uh, and we want students to be able to identify those those kinds of sources. And they, you know, they like having this kind of agency over their online experiences so that when they see something that fools them and then they can figure out, you know, no, no, you're not going to fool me again. Right. Like I found you out. I know what you actually are um, that they really take some, you know, some pride and some enjoyment in that. And that's that that kind of sort of feeling of being like an internet detective to sort of uncover this truth. So that that kind of response, right, the, the fact that they, you know, react so positively to that and that, that they are really interested in doing this, right? They are actually interested in discovering, you know, who is producing the information. I don't want to be fooled, right? I don't want someone to try to think that they can pull one over on me. That's, you know, I think cause for some hope in thinking that as they go forward, that's going to be something that's on their mind. They're not going to just be, you know, just sort of mindlessly consuming, but they are going to be thinking about, you know, I should make sure that this is something that's not not just trying to mislead me. So I think I think that is that is some cause for some hope. Instead of a generation of cynics, let's have a generation of detectives. I think that's something to strive I, for. Absolutely, absolutely. If we could have a have a generation of generation of detectives, perfect, perfect. Definitely be down for that. Are you ready for the ticket out the door? A time for people to get to know you as a person, not just as a thinker. I I, I am as ready as I'll ever be. <laughs> I think yes. All right, let's do it. <laughs> Something you are grateful for right now? Uh, having this uh, amazingly well lit office that your viewers can't see right now, but I have <laughs> this amazing space that I work in. I've got plants. I've got a great view of downtown Toronto. I've got my cat comes here, sits in my printer, sits on my desk. Fantastic. Love it. First thing you do when you wake up in the morning? Oh, I check my uh, social media feeds. I'm terrible. I check Twitter. It's like one of the first things that I do. I, I will admit it. I shouldn't and I need to change it. But that's absolutely one of the first things I do in the morning. Mm -hmm. What is the last thing you do before you go to bed? I don't want to say check Twitter again. My goodness. Uh, but probably... <laughs> probably check my socials again just to make sure I'm not missing out on anything I want to be able to practice what I preach but I do I'm uh I'm sort of addicted to what's happening online so I probably look at my phone right before I go to bed yeah most recent tv show you binged and loved Ooh, probably Barry hmm. uh the Bill Hader uh show okay. about uh about an, an assassin an actor an actor assassin very worth watching excellent highly recommend excellent Pie or cake? Oh, pie every day of the week. Mm, beach or mountains? Let's go mountains. I, I like the I like the view. I like uh, like the West Coast, Canada. Mm -hmm. I like to visit there, see those mountains. Like but West it. Coast has beach and mountains too, so it's, that is. You, I was gonna maybe cheat and say both, but if I had to choose between one of them, let's say mountains. Yes. Spring or fall? Fall. Tacos or nachos? Let's go tacos. Just so much more variety, right? Yeah. You can have just soft, hard, all the different toppings. Yeah, just uh, yeah. Tacos. What is either the best or the worst advice you have ever received? 
<laughs> I'm trying to think of the worst advice I've ever received, but I think uh, I think the best advice I ever received was uh, from my master's supervisor, uh, Adam Morton, who passed away a few years ago. Uh, I was struggling with trying to come up with some ideas, trying to write some write some papers when I was doing my master's. Uh, and he told me uh, never to be afraid to pursue a line of thought, knowing full well that it might lead absolutely nowhere. Hmm. And I think about that often when I when I'm sort of have writer's block or or struggling to come up with ideas that uh, pursue those ideas. They might lead you nowhere, but you never know. And uh, if they do, then you just go back and pursue a different path. So mm. I always I, li I like that kind of that that advice that he gave me. That's solid. That is really solid <laughs> advice. You're starting a podcast. Who would be your first three guests? Oh my goodness! I'm starting a podcast. With my first three guests. Uh, I can choose anyone. Anyone in yeah. the they'll... everyone will say yes to Ken Boyd's podcast. It is <laughs> going to be top downloaded show. Wow, this is going to be this is going to be a great podcast. I, I I'd probably want to choose some some world leaders. I mean, I'd want to talk to I'd want to talk to Trudeau, ask him some questions. I think I probably want to talk to talk to Joe Biden, ask him some questions as well. Um, and then um, I don't know, maybe I mean I'll take a a selfish one. I'll I'll, I'll choose Ira Glass because I've been listening to him his podcast and him for years and years and years, mm. and uh, maybe he has some good advice about how yeah. to how to how to do my podcast. <laughs> that sounds pretty spectacular. The final question is what is the future of learning? The future of learning. Uh, I, I don't exactly know, but I think it's been moving in one way or another for better or for worse uh, to the digital world. Um, so I think the future of learning in some way is going to be um, it's going to be online. I mean, a lot of it is already online. And we saw a lot of this, especially from, you know, coming out of the pandemic and things like that. And we saw some a lot of detriments, but we also saw some benefits in certain kinds of ways. And I think I think this we're only going to be, be getting becoming more and more online as we as, as we go along. And I think education is, is maybe following that as well. That's a vague answer, but I think that that's, uh, that's maybe the, the best I can do to prognosticate in this, in this particular moment. This has been such a fruitful and interesting and stimulating conversation, Ken. I'm so grateful for you being on the show. Thank you for coming. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's been, it's been great. There is so much about that episode that is going to stay with me. But what's at the top of my mind right now is that we all have the power to go against the stream and be mindful with these tools that are not designed for that kind of use. I'm so grateful to Ken for sharing his time and to Civics for the powerful work that they do in the world of education and democracy. To find out more about the work of Civics, go to civics.ca or follow the link in the show notes. And while you're doing your online exploring, definitely pop over to Instagram and follow Teaching Tomorrow. You can find me at teaching underscore tomorrow to get a regular stream of updates about the podcast, as well as ideas and strategies that are related to our podcast episodes. That's all the time we have for today, folks. Keep asking questions and laterally reading. And remember, we are Teaching Tomorrow. <laughs>